Father, we thank you for the grace of God poured out on us that Jesus has come and that because Christ has come, we are able to be with you. God with us and us with God forever because of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we study in this place that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us to the truth of your word. Help us to learn what you would want us to learn, to believe all that you say is true, to be changed in every way that would make us more and more like Jesus. And Father, I pray that not only would you work in us in this place, Father, we pray for your work around the world today. Particularly, we ask that that group of 52, we've been blessed to send on a really, really memorable trip that they would encounter Jesus in power. Not just the Jesus that they would hear about who lived 2,000 years ago on the earth in that place, but Jesus who's alive and well today, who's living in and through his people. May they encounter the risen Christ today. And so, Lord, we come to you ready to hear your word by the power of your spirit. And we do that with, I pray, faith-filled hearts ready to receive what you have for us. And Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter one. You know, growing up in a household where there were five heathen boys living in a pastor's home, I heard a phrase that was commonly used and that had a wide range of effects on me. Sometimes this phrase would bring me comfort. Other times it would scare me to death. The phrase was this. You ready for it, church? Here's the phrase. Titus, get ready. Dad is on his way. You know, there were times when I'd done something that I shouldn't have done, like the time that we broke the neighbor's window having a home run derby next to his house, or when I taught my little brother how to start a fire like the Boy Scouts inside the shed, or when my brothers and I hid from our babysitter, who was a member of our church's youth group, and we made her think that she had lost the pastor's kids. Those times, you know... That phrase, Titus, get ready, dad is on his way, struck fear into my little heart, right? There were also times where I was actually hurting. I was broken, literally ready to go to the hospital, like the time my brothers tied me to the tailgate of the old pickup truck, and somehow that tailgate opened up and emptied me there on the ground, and I needed stitches in the back of my head, or the time my brother kicked me in the hand, and I needed x-rays for the broken bones, or the time my brother hit me in the eye with a baseball bat, and I had to stay in the hospital for a week, or the time I busted my head open playing basketball and needed to have even more stitches. It's explaining a lot, right, church? That phrase, Titus, get ready, dad is on his way, didn't strike fear in my heart. It brought me comfort. You see, it wasn't because my dad was a different person or that he changed from situation to situation. Dad was always the same. He was strong. He was smart. He was good. The thing that changed was my condition. My condition varied greatly. And depending on my condition, Dad's arrival was either my greatest comfort or my greatest threat. And here's why I bring that up. The dynamic that I just described is very similar to the one that we find in these opening scenes of the gospel according to Mark. You see, through the ministry of John the Baptist, God is bringing a message to the people of Israel. And the basic message of John the Baptist was this. People, get ready. 
The Lord is on his way. And for some who heard that word, it was their greatest comfort. For others, it was their greatest threat. Not because Jesus would change, but because it all depended on the condition of their hearts. Were they prepared for the arrival of the Lord? And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, so let's just go ahead and dig into our text this morning as we continue this study at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, beginning here in verse 1. Look at the how Mark opens his account of the life of Christ. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Those first words in Mark's account of the life of Christ, the beginning of the gospel. Now, the word gospel is a word that I would say is probably familiar to most of us in a place like this. Even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you likely have heard the word gospel associated with the message about Jesus the Christ. That word gospel, it comes from the original language of the New Testament. It's a word that means good news. The word gospel comes from a word that just means good news. And so the message of the gospel or the message of Jesus is the good news about Jesus. But most of us likely knew that coming into the room today. But here's what I need to keep in mind, guys. Mark isn't writing to a group of people who grew up associating the word gospel with the message of Jesus. Remember, Mark was the ministry assistant to the apostle Peter when Peter was serving the people of Rome. So Mark is writing this account Uh, This this story, in a sense, of Jesus' life, he's writing it to a group of people who have grown up in a Roman culture, not a Christian culture. And in their day and time, these Roman people would have heard that Greek word, we translate gospel, and and they would have heard it in a very common and familiar way, not associated with Jesus, but it was a word that was commonly used to report a victory from the battlefield. So as they hear this word, they're hearing a word that they associate with a a report of victory from war or from a battle. I just want you to imagine living in this first century group of people. And imagine that you had to send your husbands and your sons off to war. And you don't have any of the benefits of modern forms of communication. That might be the greatest blessing of the first century. No text messages, no social media, no news organizations Sounds like heaven on earth to me. Anyhow, you would send your husbands off. You'd have no way to communicate with them while they were gone, not in the immediate, modern way. So days and weeks would go by while the people you loved were off fighting a war, and you have no idea what's happening. You gather together with your family, your friends, every day, hoping, maybe praying for a message to come so you would know what's going on even more. You wouldn't just hope for a message. You would hope that the message would be good, right? Your, your loved ones are fighting a battle. We want good news. And once you would see the messenger from the battlefield coming to you on the horizon there, you would want him to give you a word so that you didn't have to wait to hear all the details of the battle, Right? You're like, I want to know all the details, but I want to know, is this good news or bad news? Are we doing okay or are we being defeated? And here's the reality. Here's what happened in this time and place. If your army had won the battle they had gone off to fight, the messenger would run back from the battlefield with a summary of what occurred on the battle. And he wouldn't just launch into the details 
of that summary. He would start by giving you the good or the bad news. And if you won, he would shout out as he held that battle detail in his hand. It's gospel. It's good news. The victory has been won. Now think, that's how Mark starts this account of the life of Jesus. Before he launches into all the details, he leads off with a summary and he says, guys, it's gospel. It's good news. The victory has been won. Now here's why I want to point that out. Mark is not only writing to the people of Rome, he's writing at a time when Nero was the emperor of Rome. And history tells us that Nero was a maniac. He was out of his mind. He was sadistic and tortured people mercilessly. And at one point in his leadership, the Roman people are about to turn on him because the city of Rome has burned to the ground and it's suspected Nero started the fires or had them started. And he has to find a scapegoat to try and save his name and his reign. And he chooses this small band of religious people known as Christians. And he says, they're the ones who started the fire. They're the ones that we have to eradicate. And Nero starts to persecute the Christians in Rome mercilessly. He takes some of them and he throws them into the Colosseum. And he has them killed by wild animals as a sadistic form of entertainment. Other Christians, he captures has them dipped in tar and tied to posts and lining the roads, they're set on fire so they would be like street lamps for his chariot as he enters the city of Jerusalem, I mean, at the city of Rome. And those Christians are so persecuted that they have to be driven underground. They go into the catacombs of Rome and they're hiding in a sense. The church is meeting in this dark underground place because the persecution is so heavy on them. And it's during that time that Mark has written this account of the life of Jesus. And he sends it to those people huddled there in the darkness and the despair and the difficulty. They're in a battle for their lives and their livelihoods, for their peace, for their joy, and they're waiting for the word from God. And as the messenger arrives from Mark with this account, the scroll about the life of Jesus, before they move into all the details about his life, what are the first words that they hear? Gospel. It's good news. The victory has already been won. And here's, guys, my prayer for us is that as we start this journey that I don't know how long it'll last, studying verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, my prayer is that every week we will gather and hear the good news about Jesus and it will hit our hearts like good news. That no matter what you're facing and all of you are facing something, all of the trials and the difficulties that are a part of your life, all of the hardships that are a part of your life, all of the fears, all of the things that would keep you up late at night or wake you up early in the morning. My prayer is that as you hear the truth about Jesus, it would hit your heart in a way that you would say, that is gospel. It is good news. The victory is already won. Sounds like a plan, right? Now let's look at the details. What makes this such good news? Well, let's keep reading. Verses two and three. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Okay, stop right there. He says the beginning of the gospel, the good news actually starts before Jesus even arrives. He goes to these quotations from the Old Testament. Like he said here, verse 2 shows us that the central part of this quotation from the Old Testament is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. But as you dig into what he says there in verses 2 and 3, you find that there are allusions in the wording that he uses to two other prophecies from the Old Testament. One prophecy is from the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verse 20. And Exodus is in the first section of the Bible, the books of Moses, the writings of Moses, or the Pentateuch. It's right there at the very beginning of the Old Testament. And the other allusion to a prophecy from the Old Testament is one that's found in Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And so here's what's happening. Mark combines the wording of three prophecies, mainly the one from Isaiah, but one from the beginning of the Old Testament, one from the very end of the Old Testament. He brings them together. And here's what he's doing. He's pointing out the fact that the entirety of all that God has said and done in his word and in this world is culminating with the coming of Jesus. That the whole Old Testament was pointing to the fact that God would send Jesus into this world. And what Mark is saying is the beginning of the gospel started when God made a promise hundreds, thousands of years before Christ actually came. And then when Jesus came, he fulfilled those promises. They happened, and we saw this in Daniel over and over again. They happened just like God said they would. And how did God say they would happen? Well, he says in here, verses 2 and 3, these quotes from the Old Testament. God promised that his messenger would show up on the scene one day. And this messenger would prepare the way for the Lord. Now, we know this to be John the Baptist. We'll read about him in just a moment. And there's a lot that could be said about John the Baptist, a lot of questions that we could ask about him. But just given the fact that Mark has chosen these two prophecies, and these prophecies said the messenger will come from God and he will prepare the way for the Lord, it should cause us to ask a question about John the Baptist. And the question we should ask is this, how did God's messenger, how did John the Baptist, or what did John the Baptist do that prepared the way of the Lord? Because Mark's saying it happened just like God said it would, and God said this messenger would prepare the way of the Lord. So how did that happen, or what did John do that prepared the way for the Lord? So let's keep that question in mind, keep reading our text, verses 4 through 8. John appeared just like God said he would. He was here to prepare the way of the Lord. What did he do? Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying... After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so John the Baptist shows up. He appears. 
And he appears just like God said he would. He's the fulfillment of these prophecies from Moses to Isaiah to Malachi that God brought his people, that a messenger would come to prepare the way of the Lord. And what you find about John the Baptist is he's just like one of the Old Testament prophets. Basically, he's bizarre. He's out in the wilderness. He's not in the city. He's not in Jerusalem where all the people would be. He's out there in the wilderness, and he's dressed in an outfit made from camel's hair. It's all the rage in Rome. These No, I'm kidding. It's this crazy-looking, wild, beast-like outfit. His diet, his diet consists of bugs and honey. Not bugs, bunny. Bugs and honey. And can you imagine what that would have been like? To be with a guy with a long, straggly beard who only ate bugs and honey in the days before toothbrushes and breath mints. I mean, can you imagine what this guy's like? He's up close and personal because he's baptizing them. What was it like when you got baptized by John? Well, he had like a grasshopper leg right there in his tooth. It's really distracting to me, but it was a very powerful moment. This is a bizarre guy. But here he is in the wilderness eating bugs and honey, dressed like a wild animal. And even though he's bizarre, verse 5 tells us something about him. It says that the whole region is going out to see him. Like all of these people in Judea, all of the people in, in Jerusalem, this whole region's going out to see him. Basically, they're going out from the cities to this wilderness wild man. It would be like Billy Graham's crusades popping up in the middle of Mims, Florida, being led by a homeless man. No, nobody, nobody can explain it. What's going on? We've never heard of this guy before. And here's what's happening. Here's what Mark is pointing out. Essentially, the only explanation is God's hand is miraculously on this man. Like God's doing something that only God can do. Nobody else can explain it. There's nothing that makes this guy attractive or appealing. There's nothing. He's not like a, a late night stand-up comedian making everybody. He's not that guy. He's this bizarre Old Testament prophet out in the middle of nowhere, and the only way to explain it is God is doing something. But what's the question we're supposed to be asking about this wild man? The question is, what did he do that prepared the way for Jesus as God's hand is on him doing something only God can do? Well, our text actually tells us two things John the Baptist did that prepared the way for Jesus. First, John prepared the way for Jesus by calling people to repent of their sin. That's really clear. Verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's just pretty clear. He's calling people to repent. Do you see it there? Yeah, that's what he did. The baptism of John, it even says here, was a baptism of repentance or a baptism that was the expression of repentance in the hearts of people. That word repent simply means to have a change of mind. It carries with it the acknowledgement of your sin. That's why verse 5 says that as people were being baptized, they were doing so confessing their sin. Because repentance was an acknowledgement. I am wrong. I have sinned against a holy God. They They were acknowledging their desire to have a change of heart about their sin that led to a change of life. And so the symbolism of the baptism was that they desired to be clean and pure. They didn't want to continue in sin. They don't want to keep offending God and rebelling against him. And next week, what we're going to see is that Jesus was baptized by John. And I want to ask you a question. Why would Jesus be baptized if he had never sinned and didn't need to repent? It's a good question, right? 
It's a really good question. Unfortunately, you're going to have to come back next week to get the answer to it. That's a little teaser there, right? This baptism was one of repentance, turning from sin, desiring purity. And for this morning, what I just want to think about is that that was what God did through John that prepared the hearts of people to receive Jesus. But that's not all he did. John did something else. The second thing John did is he prepared the way for Jesus by telling people the truth about Jesus. Look at verse seven. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see this there? The way that John compels people to repent is by warning them that someone is coming that the Lord is on his way. He's essentially using the same phrase that was used around my house when I was growing up. He says, people, get ready. The Lord is on his way. And he doesn't just say the Lord's on his way. He begins to tell them who the Lord Jesus is and what he's like that should motivate their hearts to be ready, to repent, so they'll be ready when he comes. First, he says, Jesus is mighty. It's the first thing he says, one who's mightier than I am. Now, just think about this, okay? These people who are hearing John would have heard this man say, someone's coming who's mightier than I am. And John is the first prophet from God in over 400 years. These people in the wilderness, they've never seen anything like John before. He came with the power of God in a way that the whole country, Judea and the big city of of Jerusalem are, are being turned upside down by God's power on display in his life. And he'd have been unlike anybody they'd ever met. This amazingly powerful, mighty, great man. If you guys have been following along in Pray 21 this morning, you might have read about the death of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6. And I hope what you noticed there is that there's a little description about King Herod's heart. It says that he feared John the Baptist, which is what caused him to delay to make any move toward him whatsoever. The King Herod. The king of this nation is afraid of this wild man in the wilderness. Why? Because the power of God is on him so greatly. And John says, someone's coming who's mightier than I am. Someone's coming who's more powerful than me. Listen to what Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Of those who find their origin in their birth by their mothers, which I don't know how many of you would fall in that category. We're about almost 100% as humans. Jesus says no one was greater than John the Baptist, except that John the Baptist said one person is Jesus. Now, how does that jive with Jesus saying those born of women, those who have their origin of women? And here's, here's how it jives. The birth of Jesus wasn't the beginning of Jesus. You know that? Jesus has existed forever. His birth was not his beginning. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is God. And he's existed forever. And because he's existed forever as God, he is the one who is mightier than all. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 16 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Do you see see what it says there? What did Jesus create? Everything. All things. What's that mean? That means he's mightier than all things. You guys care if I like geek out on you for just a second? Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. Hydrogen bombs. Hydrogen, I don't know how much time you, get, you give thought to these things, but hydrogen bombs produce a kind of energy that's measured in something known as megatons. Now, a megaton is roughly the amount of energy that's produced by one million tons of TNT explosive. Okay, so the largest hydrogen bomb on earth has enough power to make 100 megatons of energy. That's the explosive effect of 100 million tons of TNT, okay? So one hydrogen bomb, that large hydrogen bomb, has enough explosive energy to equal 100 million tons of TNT. You guys know I was on a cruise last week. I want to thank you guys for allowing us to go and be a part of that. It was an awesome, awesome um, uh, time for our family. Big old cruise ship, right? Those things are huge. Well, I did a little bit of math. It would be 400 cruise ships filled with TNT to equal one hydrogen bomb. That much explosive energy, it blows our minds. As a matter of fact, the atomic bomb that was, that was dropped, the one on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killed over 200,000 people, and they were 1,000 times less powerful than a hydrogen bomb. That's crazy how big those are. So where am I going with this? Here's where I'm going. Every single second, our sun produces 100 million quadrillion quadrillion hydrogen bomb-type explosions. Pun intended, that'll blow your mind. Here's the point. Jesus made the sun. And he holds it all together every single second it exists. He's mightier than you have a category to even consider. You don't have the capacity to even consider how mighty Jesus is. Our little pea-sized brains can't even entertain the thought, let alone fathom the depths. A single word from the mouth of Jesus created all of the worlds that have been formed. And one day with one single word, all of the worlds will be destroyed by the mighty power of Jesus. And here's what John says. He's on his way way. Get ready. And he doesn't say he's mighty only. He's also worthy. Verse seven, he says, the strap of this person, the Lord Jesus's sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now now just put yourself in the place of those who hear this. Back in the day, people wore sandals and they pretty much had to walk everywhere they went. And unfortunately, there were no paved roads. So the dirt and the dust and the grime from the streets got caked onto their feet. Basically, it's my wife's worst nightmare. And even worse than that is that the animals who shared the roadways with the people produced a kind of, shall we say, exhaust that got deposited into the dirt and the dust and the grime that got collected on their sandal-wearing feet, right? Do I paint the picture? I paint the picture, right? So here's the reality. After a long day of walking around all day, a person's feet were just downright filthy. And when they got home, it was customary to have a servant take off their shoes and wash their feet. 
That was actually, historians tell us, the very first episode of Dirty Jobs on the ancient Discovery Channel. It was filthy. It was gross. So much so that Jews wouldn't even make their Jewish servants do that job. They found it so demeaning. If there was a Gentile in the household, that's who got the short straw to wash the master's feet. It was a task reserved for the lowest of the low. Now think about what's happening here. This man of God, who is a spectacle from the lowest to the greatest, mesmerizing the masses and holding the king's heart in fear. That man says, and I'm not even worthy to be the servant who takes off the sandals of King Jesus. You see what he's saying? He's saying Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of the highest honor that heaven and earth can bestow. The angels around the throne bow and worship to Jesus. And John says this, and Jesus, the one who's worthy of all glory and honor, he's on his way, so get ready. He's mighty, he's worthy, he's holy. Verse 8 says, I've baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word baptize literally means to immerse. What John is saying here is Jesus is going to come. He's going to immerse people in God's Holy Spirit. Now, for us on this side of the cross and us with this knowledge of gospel that we have, that sounds like good news. I'm immersed in the Holy Spirit. And it is good news. But guys, the holiness of God should not start as good news for sinful people like us. Because God can't even look on sin without bringing judgment and wrath. Listen to Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. He's talking to God and he says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Here's what he's saying. God's so holy that he can't look on anything that is unholy without bringing judgment and wrath and condemnation upon it. So when John says Jesus is going to immerse people in the Holy Spirit of God. Those sinful people should first hear that with hearts that tremble when they think about their own sin. One commentator put it this way. John the Baptist evidently meant that the great coming one would not merely cleanse with water, but would bring to bear like a deluge the purging, purifying, judging presence of God himself. Imagine being a sinful person having to stand between a, before a sinless, holy God. That's what John is saying. Jesus is holy and he's on his way. So get ready. So how did John prepare the way for Jesus? He proclaimed, Jesus is mighty, worthy, holy. So repent because he's on his way. Turn from your sin and humble your heart in submission before Jesus, asking God to forgive you of our sin. And that brings us our big idea this morning before we close. Here's the big idea from this text. Repentance prepares our hearts to receive Jesus, the mighty, worthy, and holy Son of God. Repentance prepares our hearts to receive Jesus, the mighty, worthy, and holy Son of God. Guys, the message of John the Baptist is a message for every single one of us. And the message is this, Jesus is on his way, so get ready, repent. 
And this is a message this world needs to hear. It's a message that we need to hear. See, the Bible says that all of us have sinned against God. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says, And you, speaking to all of us, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following after the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, the beginning of the gospel has bad news for all of us. All have sinned against our God. Here's what that means for you and me and us. It means that the greatest problem facing this world today isn't inflation and it isn't political factions And it isn't social reordering. The greatest problem facing the world today is sin against a holy God. The greatest problem in your life isn't economic stability. It isn't your family of origin. It isn't even the social ills of a world gone mad. The greatest problem in your life is the problem of your own sin. And the call of God to sinners that prepares our hearts to truly receive his son Jesus is a call to repent, to have a change of heart and mind about our sin and ourselves, to hate the sin that we have always loved and to turn our backs on it as our master church. It is time that we get serious about sin and repent And I know that's not a popular message. That's why few are preaching it, but it's in the word of God. The great problem of our world is a problem of sin that separates us from a holy God. And the greatest thing that should cause your hearts and your minds to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior is that you are a sinner And you need Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You need to be saved from your sin. And only Jesus can save you. And only he will as you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus for his grace. I want to encourage you, beware of any so-called version of the gospel that minimizes the need for personal repentance. It is cheap grace, not gospel, that minimizes repentance and sweeps it under the rug and acts like we can go through the rest of our lives loving our sin and still enter the kingdom of heaven. The call of God is repent. That Jesus is on his way. And I just want to say that as we hear about a message of repentance, something happens in many of our hearts. We think of all the people who need to repent. Some of you may be thinking of some today who could really use this message. Here's what doesn't happen in many of our hearts. Many of us don't think about ourselves 
We think, boy, it'd be great if preachers would preach about repentance and if they talked about sin because our world is so filled with it. And here's how that kind of takes expression in some of our lives. Many of us have a little bit of a list we keep of the sins we wish pastors would preach against. Any of you guys got those? Would you love to hear a sermon reminding the world that that is sin? Well, we also keep another list. It's the list we hope the preacher doesn't preach is sin. The things in our lives that are patterns that reflect this world, but not God's heart. So let me ask you this. What sin may you be harboring in your life today? What patterns of this fallen, unholy world are part of the way you live each and every day? Here's the call of God for you. Repent and confess your sin because the mighty, worthy, holy Jesus is on his way. Are you ready? Guys, that actually brings us all the way back to the very beginning of this message. The message of Jesus Christ is gospel. It's good news. It's that the victory has already been won. You see, Jesus has already come, right? He's already come and he has chosen by his grace to use his might and his worth and his holiness to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He came to settle our sin issue once and for all, not by our work, but by his own. Listen to Ephesians 2 where I left off just a moment ago. We are dead in our sin, but verse four says this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast listen to the good news sinners we need Jesus and we don't just need him we have him Christ has come and Jesus in his life gave us good news he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves Jesus lived the life we've all failed to live a holy sinless perfect life on our behalf. And Jesus died the death that we deserve to die as a payment and punishment for our sin at the cross so we could be forgiven by God and restored as his children. And even though Jesus lived and died, he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose again from the grave, just like we read in Ephesians 2, so that he could raise us up again to a brand new, heavenly, holy kind of life. And so when we hear about repent... Guys, we should, listen, we should hate our sin. And we should repent by turning our back on it. But we will not be saved by hating our sin. And we will not be saved by focusing on our sin. We will be saved by fixing our eyes on our Savior, whose name is Jesus We will be restored, not by hating sin, but by loving Jesus as our great and glorious and mighty and worthy and holy Lord, having a heart that bows before him 
and makes room for Christ by trusting in him through faith. Friends, we need Jesus and we don't just need Jesus. We have him for God so loved you and this whole world that even while we were dead in our sin, he gave us his son and that's the gospel. And that's the journey of Mark, to see Jesus for who he is so that we would trust in Jesus where we are and call on him and turn to him over and over and over again. So listen to me, friend. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there's gospel. There's good news. The victory is already won Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and is coming again. That is true without question. Here's the only question there is. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to do for you what you cannot do for yourself? Believe the gospel. Be saved. Trust Jesus. Would you bow your heads and join me in prayer? Would you begin by asking that God would prepare your heart? Fresh and new, prepare your heart to receive Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to depend on Jesus For some of you, it may be the first time that you would ever place your faith and trust in Jesus. You've never called on him to save you right now. Would you acknowledge your sin that you have broken the holy laws of God and that you cannot save yourself, you cannot fix yourself. That's why you need Jesus. And by faith, would you pray right now, asking Jesus to save you? Depending on his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection to restore you to God by his power and grace. Call on Jesus to save you right now. For those of you who are trusting in Christ, would you call on Jesus to make your heart a reflection of his? A heart that over and over again would turn your back on sin by turning your face to Jesus, that you would hate what you once loved, the patterns of this world. Call on Jesus to change your heart, to change your mind, to change your life. Even now, maybe God's highlighting a place in your life that you need to confess before him. You have harbored as sin. Right now, would you just confess to the Lord, acknowledge if there have been patterns of sin in your life and confess that you can't change those patterns by your own power. Trust in Jesus. Rely on Christ. Father, we come to you with hearts that have been broken by our own sin lives that have been ruined in many ways because of our rebellion against you. And we thank you that while we are dead in our trespasses and sin, you have loved us still. 
because you're rich in mercy. You gave us your son to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. You sent the message of gospel into our world through the person of Jesus who brings us good news. And Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to trust in Christ today. Cause us, I pray, to have his heart in us, that we would hate the sin we used to love, that we would over and again turn our backs on the ways of this world that are contrary to yours. And Lord, I pray that we would experience fresh and new the power of your Holy Spirit, purifying, purging, causing us to live like only Jesus Christ can live as Christ lives in us. Lord, we love you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.